right. It is good to be back. Thank you. Uh, Don and I got away a little bit. Uh, I thank uh, Paul Mayhew for preaching two Sundays, and then uh, last Sunday Dan Carter preached up at Daroga State Park, and it's a privilege. I've told you before that one of the signs of church health is you have more than one person who can proclaim God's word, and uh, we have a, a wealth of people who can proclaim and teach God's word, and so I'm very thankful for that. Don and I got away for a little getaway, and then we went to Montana for our, our granddaughter Bertie's birthday and uh, for a family time, and then we had to come home and rest, and uh, so we did that too. And then uh, I appreciate uh, Dan. Uh, you know, last Sunday was Dan's first uh, opportunity to preach God's Word in a setting like this, and uh, he did a great, great job, and he was a good student. Uh, you may not have known this, but Dan had an assignment every week leading up to last Sunday, and I took him through a very brief uh, uh, class on sermon preparation, and he did quite well. He's very teachable, and I deeply appreciate that, and he did a great job last Sunday. So uh, we're going to look forward to more from Dan Carter uh, as, he, uh, as we give him some more opportunities for that. So anyway, thank you, and it's good to be back, uh, back here with you all. Uh, I don't know if you can think back to your childhood, when was the most fearful time that you can remember? A very fearful time. For some of you, it might be a very fresh in your memory. For others, you may have to search, and for others, you may be say, I don't know. I've never had a fearful time. Uh, but uh, for me, the most fearful time in my childhood, I was probably uh, six or seven years old, and I finally had grown high enough that I could go on the big roller coaster with my sister. And up until then, it was over at the Kitty Park. This was at Elich Gardens in Denver, Colorado, and a big amusement park. And finally, I got tall enough to go on the big roller coaster. I didn't know what I was in for. It was the unknown, and I was kind of fearful, but my older sister went with me. And uh, we got in the car, and I think she purposefully put us in the very first car. I think it was purposeful. At least that's my story. She would deny that, but uh, it was there. And in those days, uh, I played a lot of uh, baseball and softball, so I always had a baseball cap on. And when that first, when you leave the dock there and you go up that first steep hill, I just pulled it down over my eyes, and it didn't come off until we were done, and I was scared to death. And for some reason in my immature mind, I thought if I couldn't see it, it couldn't hurt me, right? And uh, so I did survive and uh, went back many other times, of course, but uh, it was very fear-inducing. I can still remember that to this day. And my sister still makes fun of me with my cap down over my eyes so I couldn't see. But the reality is, is that I think we as Christians sometimes pull our metaphorical caps over our eyes and kind of ignore uh, some of the things that go on in the world around us a little bit and some of the targets that we are. We've been in this study in the book of Ephesians, and we're in, as Russ said, the armor of God. And let me set the context because it's been three weeks since we've been here. Uh, remember, the book of Ephesians is Paul's addressing the church as a whole. And was sent to the church at Ephesus in Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul is under Roman house arrest, Roman guard in Rome. And he writes this about 61, 62 AD, uh, right before his martyrdom. Uh, but the Apostle Paul is concerned for the church there. And he relates to them uh, this great blessing in chapters 1 through 3 of this little letter. 
the great wealth that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you haven't read those three chapters lately, I'd encourage you to go back and read through them again uh, just to acclimate yourself, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the wonderful wealth, the blessings, because of what Christ has done. Interestingly, in the first three chapters, there are no commands for us. It's all about what God has done. And then there's always a therefore, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this letter are the therefore. In other words, in light of the blessings that we have in Christ, therefore, live out your life in such a, a, such a way. In fact, in chapter 4, it tells us, therefore, verse 1, the prisoner of the, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So this worthy lifestyle, basically, the Apostle Paul is detailing, he's sketching out for us in these last three chapters. And we've gotten uh, down to the point uh, where the Apostle Paul has used the metaphor of walking in life uh, as a metaphor for lifestyle, and he commands us to walk in certain ways through these three chapters. But suddenly we come to this place in verse 10 of chapter 6 where he tells us to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, Tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to, what, walk? No, stand firm, he tells us, against the schemes or the cunningness of the devil, of Satan. And uh, we need to recognize that Satan is also called our adversary. He is called uh, many things in Scripture, but he is our accuser. He accuses us before the Heavenly Father. Somehow that happens And uh, Jesus Christ is the one who is our advocate, our defender. He is our intercessor. He intercedes for us. And so Jesus Christ is our all in all. And so the Apostle Paul tells us to put on this full armor of God because there is the reality of spiritual warfare. And, of course, here in the West, we are basically children of the French Revolution, whether you realize that or not. Remember, in the French Revolution, Reason or rationality was the queen of the French Revolution, and to this day, France suffers because of their placing reason and rationality as the supreme thing of worship. And so we are children of that. Uh, The forefathers of our country were greatly affected by the French Revolution and how we, uh, thankfully, God has directed us in different paths, but yet we are still a little bit skeptical of anything that doesn't make reasonable sense or rational sense to us. And we're talking here about spiritual warfare, the unseen that's going on around us. Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, theologian from the last century, in one of his first books contrasted our present physical experience and the supernatural experience that goes on around us. And his claim was is that this reality that we experience soon ends in this life, but yet the supernatural reality is what is really important and what is really going on. But Satan seeks to destroy us, and the Apostle Paul knows this, especially in light of what he's just told us in chapters 5 and 6. He's talked about family issues, work issues, how to submit to one another, and uh, God, Paul knows that uh, the Satan will attack us in those areas of unity, of uh, being together as families, and so he Uh, really wants to warn us and give us instruction in that. And so uh, I don't know how many of you are wearing Nike shoes today. If any of you are, I want to thank you for buying Nike shoes because my sister recently retired and you helped support her through those years at uh, Beaverton in 
Oregon. And so, thank you. But the word Nike, Phil Knight, by the way, did not make that up. That's a Greek word, which is translated victory. And uh, very astute of him, by the way, to borrow that ancient term uh, from, from Greece and uh, from the Greek language. But Nike means victory. If we look at Scripture, if you do a sketch through Scripture about this word victory, this Greek word victory, we see it in different English forms, but we think of this positional victory that is described for us throughout the New Testament in the, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. I have had victory over the world. Jesus said that, Romans 8, 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. In fact, the word there is hypernike, which means super victory. And uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven tells the believer that we are victorious through Christ. In 2 Corinthians two fourteen, it tells us we are triumphant in Christ. And 1 John 5, 5 calls the believer in Jesus Christ an overcomer. Well, I don't know how you feel this morning or how you uh, get a sense of what the New Testament is telling us, but do you consider yourself a victor, an overcomer in the Christian life, a conqueror? Do you experience victory in your day-to-day walk with Jesus Christ? Why or why not is the question. And uh, I think it's tied to the verse we're going to look at today. And I don't think we truly uh, appreciate, perhaps, the weapons of our enemy, the enemy of our souls. We don't truly appreciate it. Let me give you an example back here. If you would take your copy of Scripture and turn clear back to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 20. We won't do a detailed explanation of this. You may be familiar with this account out of the Old Testament. Uh, but there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel, and the southern two tribes are the kingdom of Judah. And uh, they've just gotten through with this uh, big fight. Uh, they, they, they aligned themselves together against an enemy, and the king of, uh, of Israel, the northern kingdoms, Ahab, he was an evil king, was killed in that, uh, but the other king, the king of the Judah, the southern kingdom, is named Jehoshaphat. Uh, he survived, and he came back to Jerusalem. By the way, uh, I love biblical names when people give their children biblical names, and I've wondered why nobody picks Jehoshaphat. Can you imagine that? Jehoshaphat knock. Of course, I know what the nickname would be, uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. But uh, it tells us there that uh, Jehoshaphat, his heart turned to the Lord. In chapter 19, verse 4, so Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country on Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so Jehoshaphat was attempting to bring the nation, this portion of Judah, these two tribes, back into relationship, fellowship with their God. And uh, so he was uh, trying to do that. But then in verse 20, and by the way, with uh, spiritual victories and positive things, uh, I think there's a lesson here. We see it in the Old Testament that there's going to be greater attacks of what God is doing, you know, against what God is doing. In verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, 
Then some came and reported Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Amran, and behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. Uh, so, in other words, there were bear- bearers of bad news, and there always are uh, people who are more than willing to bring the bad news. And look at verse 3. Jehoshaphat was afraid. Jehoshaphat was afraid. If you go down through this whole chapter, you can pick out that the people, Jehoshaphat and the people, were afraid. Verse 9, they were distressed. Verse 12, they were powerless before this mighty foreign army that was coming to destroy them. They were fearful. They were dismayed in verse 17. And I think there is an example there of a literal, real, physical battle that is going to occur, which is interesting how it ends up. But uh, sometimes we think, well, yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. But that was Satan opposing God and God's people. And he opposes God and God's people to this day. He just does it in different ways. Remember Satan, in fact, one of my theology professors said that he is like an illusionist. He's the master illusionist. Because remember, Satan is not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's a created being. He has a beginning. Just like the other angelic beings, they were created. They are not God, even though uh, Lucifer, who fell and became Satan, is desired to have God's place, the original sin of pride. But the battle we are in today, the warfare that we are experiencing as believers, and you may not even think you're experiencing it, but it is just as real and threatening as the sons of Ammon against the people of Judah and uh, Who are the sons of Ammon in your life? Could be lingering doubt. We're going to talk about the weapons that Satan is going to use here in a moment. The sons of Moab, they might be nagging discouragement. The sons of Mount Seir, uh, they could abide and provide disillusionment with your situation in life. Perhaps an army of despair is just swarming down upon you or adversity and difficulty, and it threatens to overthrow your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. As we go back to Ephesians chapter 6, we've been going through the details of these armor. I've been taking a piece of armor. There are six of them uh, each week. And uh, we recognize that there are three realities in the passage that Russ read for us. First of all, our sufficiency, and this is foremost in our minds. Keep this in the front of your mind as you read this passage. Our sufficiency comes from the Lord. Finally, be strong in what? In the Lord and in the strength of his might, verse 10. So verses 10 and 11 detail for us that our sufficiency, any protection we have, comes from God himself. But the struggle is very real, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I think sometimes we get deflected and derailed because we think our enemy sits in some Senate seat in Washington, D.C., And the reality is, is that person may be being used by Satan in this battle, but our enemy is not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces of this uh, darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Uh, He's covering all the bases of all the demonic forces, Satan being the premier of that. And our strength is in God's resources, verse 13. Therefore, in light of this stuff... Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. That's the command, to stand firm. So how do we stand firm in this? Jesus said that the devil is a liar. Jesus said he's a murderer whose aim is to destroy, to wreck, to destroy, distort, and pervert human life. And all we have to do 
is look at our culture and the culture around the world. And it is perverted. It is uh, distorted. But this need not be in the Christian's life, in the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ's life. We are studying an adequate defense against those things. We are urged and encouraged to be strong in the Lord. That's our source of strength. Our question is always, how do we do this? You know, we were very practical people. How do we do this? How exactly do you become strong in the Lord and the strength of his might? Well, we begin with these, the armor of God, with these things. And so we have truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace, which we've covered in previous weeks. And today we come to verse 16. It says, in addition to all, in other words, it's not above all, but is in addition to it, uh, Take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith. Remember, the Apostle Paul is using Roman armor. Remember, he is probably chained to a Roman guard. And uh, Roman centurions and uh, military personnel were uh, all over the Middle East in in the first century. And so he's using what is very familiar as a metaphor uh, for people to understand what he's saying. So he's using these pieces of armor uh, to describe what these items are. He talks about uh, the belt of truth here. He's talking about the breastplate or the protection for the heart of righteousness and uh, the, the footwear of the gospel of peace. And today he talks about the shield of faith, the shield of faith. But we are all targets in this battle, and we need to recognize that it is sobering to think that sometimes some of the difficulties that we experience and, in, in, and engage are really spiritual warfare. I hopefully am not one who sees Satan behind every event and every door, and yet I don't want to be so modern in my thinking that I don't think he exists at all. And there's a balance point, and I think the balance is found in Jesus Christ, the focus on him and not on what Satan does or does not do. But we need to recognize that we're a target in an unholy war. I'm going to start at the end of the verse, then we'll go back to the first of the verse in verse 16. But uh, there is the reality of spiritual warfare. And at the end of verse 16, he tells us there that with this shield of faith, you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And, of course, the Apostle Paul uses the imagery from current battlefield, from combat in the first century, where they would dip arrows in pitch, light them on fire, and then, therefore, they could uh, set fire to the armament or to the, uh, the forts or whatever was there. Uh, that would destroy uh, the ones they were opposing. So what are the flaming arrows that the evil one hurls here? What are those flaming arrows? And I think the first one is doubt. I think the first one is doubt. Clear back to Genesis, when God placed, or when Satan placed doubt in Adam and Eve's minds that did God really say? And so there's a tendency to believe Satan and not to believe God. The arrow of doubt in Genesis 3 Uh, verse 1 and 4 through 7, it leads people to discouragement, disillusionment, and despair. And so doubt tends to enter our mind. Is God really good? Did God, is he really in control? Does he even know what I'm going through? You know, and we get those points. All of us have the dark night of the soul where we think, boy, this is out of control. Whatever it may be, it may be relational issues, maybe a death in the family, it may be something else, but we'll say, Man, does God really know what he's doing? Illness, whatever it is. So the arrow of doubt. Secondly, I think there is the arrow of temptation. And we think of Jesus Christ when he was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. 
And Satan tried to tempt Jesus the Christ to abandon his role and his thing. And he used the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 2. So there's the arrow of temptation. It is always with us because we are in the world. We may not be of the world, but we are in the world, and therefore we are affected by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. I think all of advertising is based upon those three characteristics, or at least some of them. And then not only the arrow of doubt, the arrow of temptation, but the arrow of distrust. Again, believing Satan and not believing God for who he says he is. And it's easy to do. And we need to be aware of that, that that arrow is thrust at us because some of us perhaps are a little more vulnerable in the sense of our life experience or where our circumstance that we're in right now, that we will not trust God because he doesn't seem trustworthy. That is the, the agonizing question throughout all of history. If God is good and all-powerful, then why do I suffer? You know, why doesn't he, if he's all-powerful, he can take it away. If he's all good, he would want to take it away. And that's the argument an atheist will use against us. And uh, we recognize that God is all-powerful because the Bible teaches that he is all-good, he is all-loving, because the Bible also teaches that. And his ways are higher than our ways. So the arrow of doubt, the arrow of temptation, the arrow of distrust, and the fourth one, I think, is the arrow of disunity. Remember that oftentimes we approach Scripture and it's just speaking to me individually. Remember the Apostle Paul is addressing the church, uh, the body of Christ, and together in this local expression of the body of Christ, there is the temptation, the danger that Satan is trying to disunify us. And it is very real. We've seen it in the past. Uh, we've experienced it. Some of you have been hurt deeply by disunity in the past. And uh, so be aware of that. Because if we go back to Ephesians chapter 4, remember this verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What that tells us is that each believer in Jesus Christ that makes up the body of Christ, makes up this local church, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. When we have differences with one another, it means a couple of things. It means that uh, there are times we don't agree on everything, and that's okay. But uh, there are other times when it's sin, either on one part, party's part, or on both parties' part. Because God cannot be divided, can he? So I think the arrow of disunity is very real in uh, just looking at chapter 4, verse 3. And so those are the flaming arrows of the evil one. I think that's a summary. There's many more. Uh, we can't uh, just box Satan into that because he is a master illusionist and a danger to our souls. He hates our souls. He hates our Savior. But we are given an enablement for the firefight back in verses 10 through 14, and it is in Christ's sufficiency. Only he is sufficient for this. Remember, God is all-powerful, and he is giving us enablement for protection. When we go through these pieces of armor, it's actually... Uh, echoing out of the book of Isaiah where God is described as this warrior with these pieces of armor on him. And we are enabled to thwart the attacks of, uh, attacks of Satan. Uh, it, you know, we need to remember that the attacks are not simply philosophy or political agendas, but he is attacking our very souls. And he wants us to, God wants us and gives us the armor to thwart the worst imaginable attacks of the evil one. And with this shield, we can extinguish all the flaming darts. 
perhaps, and I think last time I read, uh, second to the Bible, the best-selling book in Western literature anyway, is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And in it, he writes about a character named Apollyon who taunted Christian, who is the main character on a journey, with a threat. Here I will spill thy soul, unquote. And with that, John Bunyan continues, he flew a flaming dart at his breast, but Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and prevented the danger of that. And so we are a target in an unholy war, and that's what Bunyan was reflecting upon there. But as a Christian, you have protection in the firefight. There is protection. We love the protection. And it's more than a baseball cap pulled over your eyes, because that won't help a bit, believe me. Uh, we are able to take up the provided protection. At the first part of verse 16, the Apostle Paul tells us, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Of course, uh, in the Roman army, the Roman military, they had different armaments and different shields. And sometimes uh, you see a small round shield, which is clipped to the soldier's arm, which is for close combat. But also there was the large shield. And this word here is the word that's used for the large shield. Uh, Armitage Robinson, who is a commentator and studied history from another age, writes that the, Paul, the word Paul uses to denote not the small round shield, which left most of the body unprotected, but the long oblong one measuring uh, four feet by two and a half feet, which covered the whole person. It consisted of two layers of wood glued together, covered first with linen and then with hide, and it was bound with iron above and below. It was specifically designed to put out the dangerous incendiary missiles then in use, especially arrows dipped in pitch, which were then lit and fired, unquote, from Armitage Robinson. Uh, but more than that, that shield, uh, when you think of the Roman phalanx, they were trained, those military people were trained, the soldiers were trained to lock their shields together so it was an impenetrable wall. And then the ones right behind them would put the shields up so arrows could come over the top, and they would march towards their enemy. And they were, uh, they were greatly feared in the first century. And so they take, we were to take up the shield. That's the picture is total protection, total protection. And he tells us there what this shield is, what it really consists of, and it's the shield of faith. The shield of faith. We think of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. It is basically believing God. In Psalm 30, verse 5, God himself is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I went through Psalms. I have two pages here of references in the book of Psalms describing God as a shield. Listen to a few of them. Psalm 3, 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory and the one who lifts my head. Uh, Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And on it goes, a number of occurrences of God is our shield. And what God has done is he's saying, here, take my shield. And it is the shield of faith. It is believing in him. It is persuaded that no matter what you're going through, he can handle it. Believing is being persuaded that he can handle it. I always encourage you to think about when you go to bed at night, lay your head on that pillow, to remember that God is sovereign. God's sovereignty is defined as God is working out all things in all places at all times for his glory and for the good of his people. 
He's working all things at all times in all places out for his glory and the good of his people. And to remind yourself of God's sovereignty, no matter how bleak, how dark, how difficult your life may look at this moment. And just praise him for that. Uh, this whole issue of faith, whether you know it or not, we think we know what faith means. It means belief. Uh, but it's under great attack today in evangelicalism, if you will. Uh, there is a movement which would define faith this way, and it's uh, Reformed and Covenant theology, Lordship Salvation proponents, but they define faith this way. It's an intellectual assent. It is emotional response and a willful decision. So they say faith is a three-step process. It's an intellect, it's an emotional response, it's a willful decision. And yet we look at Scripture, especially the Gospel of John. This morning, Early this morning, I went through the Gospel of John, and I count the word belief, believe, uh, believing, believed, past tense, past tense, occurs 94 times in the Gospel of John. And I think I've told you before that our salvation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life over 150 times in the New Testament, the only requirement for that consequence of everlasting life is simply to believe. And, of course, it's under great debate. You may not be aware of it among theologians today, uh, but Reformed and Covenant theology and Lordship proponents, as well as many others, would say that it, you have to have an intellectual uh, assent to it. You have to emotionally respond and willfully decide. And yet, we look at all those occurrences of belief where it's about a person believing in Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, which is the gospel tract of the whole Bible. Uh, you don't see that. You see people simply believe. Look with me back at John chapter 11. And you're familiar with this. This is where Lazarus has died. He's been buried. He's been in the tomb for four days. And Martha and Mary, his sisters, are brokenhearted. And they call for Jesus. Jesus lingers, doesn't show up until after the body has begun to decay. Uh, and so Jesus comes. There's all these mourners there in Bethany. And in verse 20 of chapter 11, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Interesting statement, worthy of one whole sermon right there. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She already believes in everlasting life. She knows that her brother will be in heaven Basically, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, wait a minute. Martha's sitting there. Let's see. Okay, intellectually, do I believe it? I'm having an emotional response. I guess I'll willfully choose. No. She said in verse 27 to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. She could not not believe because she had already believed in Jesus Christ. Belief is simply belief in that. And uh, it's not these shades of belief. It's not degrees of belief. It's not categories of belief. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you are persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is and that he is going to deliver on what he said he's going to deliver. 
uh, I used an illustration of the first time I flew in an airplane. I knew airplanes could fly because I saw them all the time going across above me. But then there was this point where I got in and rested in the airplane, and it took off and it flew. And that's a, don't make illustrations walk on all fours, as they say, but that was for me. You know, I had to say, I really do believe. You know, I'm persuaded that this is going to happen. There was a missionary named John Patton. He worked in the South Pacific on the islands. He was translating scripture for a certain tribe. And he found that there was no word in their vocabulary for believe or trust or have faith. He had no idea how he would convey this principle to them since they had no word for it. And one day as he was translating in his little hut there, one of his co-workers, a native, came running up to the hut and was running fast. He ran up the stairs in the door and he flopped himself down in the chair by Patton's desk. Then the native said to John Patton, it is so good to rest my whole weight in this chair. And John Patton finally had the words he needed for faith for his Bible translation, the words which meant resting one's whole weight upon. And so Patton's definition of faith was resting your whole weight on God, not holding anything back. This word entered into the translation of their New Testament and many came to know Christ as their Savior because of Patton's translation in that. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that the shield of faith, that we believe God can do what he said he's going to do, that even when things don't go the way we want them to go, we know that God is going to ultimately use it for good, for his glory and for the good of his people. And in chapter 2, verse 8, we see that salvation is by faith. Uh, that it's by grace through faith and believing in Jesus Christ that we are persuaded that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And this undergirds all of Christianity is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith lays hold of the promises of God in times of doubt and depression, and faith lays hold of the power of God in times of temptation. The shield of faith is a constant Consistent application, what we believe about God to the issues of life, especially when those times where everything seems out of control. And we've probably all been there at one point or another. Uh, if you don't trust him, then you don't know him well enough, because if you really knew him, you would trust him. It all goes back to relationship. Again, there are no degrees of belief. You believe or you don't believe in God and what he's going to do. And this is more than just for our justification or our initial salvation, but it on, goes on throughout this life and our sanctification. Do we believe God in what he is doing in all of these things? Some practical observations here. With the Roman soldier, we must meet the enemy head to head, face on, and interlock our shields of faith for a sure defense. That's how God has provided for us. The first three items of the armor, the truth that holds everything else together, it's foundational readiness Righteousness protects our mind and emotions, personal holiness, righteous living. Gospel of peace gives us protection and stability, uh, the peace of God standing in his resources. How do we win against Satan's army? Well, we don't. Christ does. Christ is the one who gives us the resources, but we are the ones who are convinced and have certitude and certainty that Jesus Christ is true and what he said is going to do. If we went back and took the time, the Second Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat and Judah, they do 
are victorious. Of course, they don't do anything. God wins the victory for them there. God does the fighting in Second Chronicles 20, verses 20 and 22. He gives the victory in verse 24. And then he lets the people collect the spoils and enter into his presence with joy. That is uh, hyper-Nike, super-conquering, if you will. That is the way God wants us to live today. And so are you standing in your Nike, the victory that God has given you, that no matter what it looks like, you can still trust God, you still believe in him, that he is going to bring things to pass for his glory and for the good of his people. We may not see the resolution in this lifetime, but we will see the resolution, for all things will be made right in faith. 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, uh, the Apostle John writes there, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Remember that little, uh, I don't think it's a hymn, it's more of a chorus as the deer out of Psalms. The chorus of that song says, You alone are my strength, my shield. You To you alone may my spirit yield. In other words, do I really believe that Jesus is the one? Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your grace, your mercy.